This is Michael Enzi, and you're listening to the Left Coast Pirates. Morton will try to go all the way. seconds to go down by two. Here's Whitehead. Guarded by Ochefu. Gets the step into the lane. Goes to the bucket. Layup. Rolls around and in. And a foul! Whitehead ties the game! Pow! From Trenton! Woo! What Trenton makes, the world takes! From just west of the Ward Place Gate in San Diego, California, he is Mike Deziri, class of 2001. I am Tom Kaharski, class of 1997, and we are Left Coast Pirates. Welcome to this week's edition of Left Coast Pirates. It is February 28th, 2021, and man, it's been a bittersweet week to be sure. But let me start off with a little bit of positivity, Mikey. This is our 100th episode of Left Coast Pirates. I can't believe we've actually reached it, Mike. Originally, we were going to put out four episodes that first season, and then the podcast just took on a life of its own. Realistically, this podcast has really turned into something else than what we originally thought it would be, Mikey. You know, we've been able to talk to people we've got no right talking to. It's taken us to places that we'd never been able to get into. And I kind of still shake my head when I look at it as a whole. So, Mikey, happy 100th episode. Happy 100th to you too, Tom. You know, you know, I blame Kentucky for this. We had, we had the whole <laughs> thing mapped out. It was supposed to be like, you know, halfway through the non-conference, recap the non-conference, you know, midway through the season, just a couple episodes here and there, and you couldn't control yourself. They beat Kentucky at the Garden. You're like, we're recording an episode now, now. And we got on the mic, and oh, that was a mess. Oh, it was that was horrible. a mess. We had to re-record it the next day when I started editing. It was just a Oh, man. A well, mess doesn't it, describe it. It also taught us that, you know, you can't do uh, Seton Hall basketball in chunks of like six games at a time. You have to kind of be present and in the moment. Uh, and that's what that's what's fun about what we do. I mean, you know, it makes it emotional because you're present in the moment. Um, but, you know, let, let's dial it back for a second. Uh, one of the things that I'm most proud of that we've been able to accomplish uh, on this podcast is the historical preservation of some of the great moments uh, that are retold by the former players during the summer series. Right? I, I truly enjoy those interviews. But what I've also learned from that experience is that the historical context is also often forgotten and misrepresented by many fans as the stories that were told. So it, it happens. I, I, I get it, right? It's, it's not just sports, but how history is retold in general. But after this last loss, I'm personally taking issue with some of the comparisons to the previous poor performances. You know, I, I totally get the raw emotions after a no-show effort in this recent game at Butler. And I understand that it really feels like the reality of this team's potential of not making the NCAA tournament for the first time in six years might actually be starting to set in. But it was not a loss of historical proportions compared to that of the DePaul loss in 2012. I'm going to give you that context now, right? 
That year, DePaul was the perennial doormat of the Big East. Wait a minute. And wait I a minute. Let me hold on. Let me get over my shock for a second. DePaul doormat. Oh my goodness. No, no, I, I don't just mean last place. Tom, they were coming off back-to-back seasons of finishing conference play one in seventeen. One in seventeen back-to-back years, and we're currently two and fifteen as the Pirates are coming to town in a must-win. Yes. That's correct. Must win tournament clinching game. Yeah. Four and 49 in the previous three seasons in conference play heading into that game. The ghosts of senior Jamie Crockett going five of seven for three and scoring a game high 21 to lead four blue demons in double figures still haunts me today. DePaul led by 13 and a half and went on to beat us by 28 in a non-competitive game. That pirate team, Tom, it needed that win to get to 9-9 nine and nine in a loaded Big East and also had two top 10 wins under its belt already to go along with an 11-1 non-conference record. It was a lock to get in with that victory. Whereas this last game was a must-win just to stay alive, to be in position, to make the dance with two difficult games against UConn and at St. John's ahead. But by no means did this game give them you know, a spot in the tournament. These two games are not even comparable in terms of significance, and I hate this comparison. Well, we've been doing this all season, haven't we? I mean, the game at Nova, where they were calling the foul at the end of the game comparable to the 89 championship game and nonsense like that. I mean, it's been painful all season. You know, everyone likes to think that moment in time is always comparable to some other moment in time. It's awful, Mike, but let's kick off 100 with the right bang. Let's see what's on the podcast this week. So we will review the debacle at Hinkle. We will play bubble breakdown and see how Seton Hall University stacks up against other teams. And finally, we will look at the pandemic pandemonium. But first... Butler 61, Seton Hall 52. The Pirates would actually jump out to an early 11-4 advantage, but Butler responded with a 14-2 run of their own. A layup by Jared Ronan right before the break gave the Hall a two-point lead, 26-24. But that would be the final time they led in this contest. The Bulldogs charged out of the locker room with a 10-3 run, and with 10 minutes to play and a Butler 7-point lead, the Bulldogs went on another 17-8 run and essentially iced the game. All right, Tommy, stats on this one. Yeah, not a lot to write home here. It's a little depressing. You got Roden with 14, Sandro with 11, and the two combined for 10 of 27 from the floor. Then you got Reynolds and Kale who were not much better. They combined for six of 20 from the floor. The starters shot a collective 35%. And then on the other side, you know, Butler didn't light it up. You got Bryce Enzi with 11 points and 13 rebounds, a double-double coming back off an injury. You got Brooklyn native Jair Bolden with a game-high 16. And once again, a freshman, Chuck Harris, 14 points, six rebounds, five assists, and two steals. And we're going to be seeing a lot of some of these guys, you know, in the future as these freshmen are starting to get experience for these other teams. All right. Team stats. Seton Hall shot 38% from the floor, 22% from three on yes. Another 27 attempts behind the line, 28% from the free throw line, two of seven. They just couldn't even get to the damn line. Butler was plus eight on the glass and Butler shot 15 of 16 from the free throw line. 
when they were collectively 63% as a team coming into the game. Tommy, it, it, that just hurt reading those numbers. I'll give you the turning point, 26-26 early in the second half, and it just becomes a microcosm of the game, this play, in my opinion. You got Miles Tate driving. He misses a floater. Enzi out-hustles Kalen Obiagu to tap the ball out to Chuck Harris, who unselfishly passes it over to Jair Bolden, who steps into a three. Bang. The body language of every pirate on the floor at that point looked completely deflated after that bucket. It wasn't just the Pirates that looked deflated. The minute Bolden caught that pass, I'm sitting there thinking to myself, oh, that's going in. How many times do we see that as Pirate fans? An open player, top of the key, just drilling a shot. It just drives me crazy. I knew it was going in the minute it left his hand. I go, oh, there it is. It was the loose ball stuff again. We talked about it in the previous game against Georgetown. Like, how many loose balls did we win that were 50-50 variety? Now you have a situation where, you know what, you got two guys going for the ball from our team, one guy from their team, he makes the hustle play. And that, that's, look, that's just what happens when you get a scramble ball like that. It always ends up in a wide open three. You know, they converted it. And when you convert those kind of plays, those are momentum changers. And it, and it felt that way in this game because at that point, they, they went on that 10-3 run and they never looked back. So, Mike, let's not waste any time breaking down this game in the least. I mean, as much as I didn't want to break down the win against DePaul last week, this one is even worse. And I think the fan base feels the exact same way because this week's chatter online was spent on what I can only call a referendum on Coach Kevin Willard. Now, I'm not sure anyone changed any sides on this debate because after the debacle at Hinkle, both sides dug deep. You got the Willard haters digging their heels in and you got the Willard lovers digging their heels in. But let's do this instead of going through this nastiness. Let's just jump right in to what Coach thought about this game and some of the comments he made after it. So you want to go right into deep thoughts with Kevin Willard. No, no sour grapes and grapes. No sour. No, 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 no blue tinted glasses. glasses. What was the, what? That nobody got hurt? Is that the blue tinted glasses? All right. Well, I'm, I'm down with that. But, but I'm not shocked as to the response on social media. You know, there, there was no down the middle. It was either build a statue to the guy or let's run him out of the building. And, you know, have him pack his bags and, and walk home from Butler. I don't get it. I mean, there is somewhere down the middle here. And hopefully as we go through some of his comments after to this game, we'll kind of maybe take a broader perspective maybe with some of these quotes right. and, and not just holding it on Butler. You know, no one ever called our fan base subtle, Mike. So, I mean, you are correct. So let's go right into... And now, Deep Thoughts with Kevin Willard. Okay, Mike, there were a ton of quotes that Kevin made after the game. Unfortunately, we, we couldn't capture any of them because it just seems like there haven't been any post-game interview shows since the DePaul game. It's ironic, isn't it, Mike? That's not true. He's been on with Gary. Just with, they're not getting posted publicly on the website it's not anymore. online. I don't know, Mike. Tommy, don't be starting conspiracy theories here. Don't, don't be doing that. Okay. But... But we have them in print, so unfortunately, you got to listen to Tom and I read them out this week. Would you, would you like to take the first one? Sure. So the question came up about Seton Hall's effort this week, and Kevin replied as such. They came out, and they played better than us. They got off to a deepened start, and we got three happy over the last couple games, the last three games, and we just settling in for too many threes. I hate to say it, 
We missed two free throws toward the end of the first half, and we missed two free throws at the beginning of the second half, and it just kind of took the wind out of our sail. Give them credit. They played really well. All right, Tom, I'm going to try to stay even-keeled as best as I can here. I got, I got two issues with this quote. Please tell me the team has more mental fortitude that four missed free throws in a, in a tie ball game, nonetheless, with 19 minutes left to play, doesn't do them in. It's a silly quote, man. I, you know, I think he's having a hard time answering it because he was flustered. He looked defeated during the game. I mean, toward the end of the game, he's just kind of got his shoulder slumped. He just looked beat up. So I, I don't know that he even wanted to talk to Gary at this point, to be honest with you. So then once again, why don't you say, hey, for me, that felt like the turning point, right? We're, we're up towards the end of the first half, or we have a chance to maybe give ourselves more of a cushion going to the half. We have a chance to extend the lead to start the second half. And both of our best players, seniors, miss both free throws. And yeah, that, that, kind of, that, that did. It, it kind of gut punches a little bit to not get those points. But the game wasn't over. You can't tell me that they packed it up and folded it in at that point. What, what bothers me more is the, is the portion of the quote about the three-pointers. You've talked about settling for three-pointers. You know, one game, you settle for three-pointers. Okay, I can accept that. I, you know, you get in the rhythm and all of a sudden you're trying to win it from three. You come back and actually watch the film. Now you've got a second game where you've tried to do the same thing and now a third. That's on you. Call a timeout. Get an offense moving. Understand that this is how teams are going to attack you. You just can't sit there and go, well, we got happy with three-pointers again. The problem is, you know, you have this John Rothstein propaganda of Kevin Willard being the chiropractor. But it is kind of, you know, he's developed this mantra of being this guy now. So every time the Seton Hall does something well, you know, it's promoted across social media, Twitter, even nationally now, where everyone's going, Kevin Willard, the chiropractor. So I'm going to hold issue here and say, you know what? three straight games you're telling me that you're taking too many threes where is the adjustment now i expect it if that's your mantra that's who you are and you're going to own that moniker and and wear the t-shirt that rothstein's peddling then you got to make the changes in these types of moments and it has not happened in any one of these three games where they just keep chucking no more rothstein mentions mike i don't know i, do I feel you think, bad do you, do, you think, do you think you just sold one more t-shirt because yeah, of this I'm making money on other people's names anyway we'll take the next one mike all right uh on what kept seton hall neutralized i think they did a good job they went small they switched on all our pick and rolls and they really went under shavar's pick and rolls uh they really decided to come after sandro but it's nothing we haven't seen all year I didn't think we came out with the right mindset of playing physical basketball. We gave up some big offensive rebounds in the second half to hurt us. We gave them threes, and they carried that momentum uh, throughout the rest of the game. You've got two main issues here. I'll start with the first one. They really came after Sandros. I'm going to put the secret out, Mike. Don't tell anybody. UConn's coming into town, and their best player is James Booknight. He scores about 20 points a game. Maybe we should stop him. What is this? Of course they're focusing on Sancho. You know, we've they've made him into this unicorn and he's all Big East and he's going to be an NBA player. Of course they're going to stop focusing in on Sancho. It's just dumb. Mike, two years ago we had a joke. We kept on saying it. Miles Powell was going to be the central focus of this offense. And what did we say every time you couldn't get Miles a good look out there? Coach Willard, you had one job to do this past summer. And it was to figure out how best to use Sandro this year. You had one job. 
I think he thinks using Sandro is letting him freelance as a point forward, you know, bring the ball up, run the fast break. We, maybe that's his philosophy. I fundamentally disagree with that use of Sandro at times. He's going to be able to flash that kind of talent and ability, but that's not the way the offense needs to be run. He needs to be in the post. He needs to be passing out of the post when they double team him. And that's not been happening. He's getting frustrated. He's forcing things. Now his turnover numbers through the roof. And Kevin is not doing anything to kind of alleviate that pressure. I'm not saying he's shrugging, but Sandro is definitely frustrated. Yeah, And you know who's frustrated? Shavar is getting frustrated. Why? Because just like Kevin said, that's the right defensive approach right here. Shavar, he's not good at creating a shot off the dribble in terms of his three-pointer. You've seen him like bricking some bad ones lately, right? Not even close. Off the back rim, you know, off the glass, falling short. He's just all over the map because he needs, as you've said numerous times, great percentage shooter when his feet are set and he can get his shoulders square to the basket. But creating off the dribble, not so much. So he's been scouted and teams are going under the pick and roll saying, all right, go ahead, take that shot. To me, this goes back to Willard. What are you doing to put yourself in a better position to succeed? Maybe Shavar should not be running the pick and roll. Maybe it should be Miles Kale. If they want to sag underneath, he's been your most consistent player from three. Let Miles pull up and, and, and take one. Well, let's move on. The next quote is about offensive confidence. I don't really know what it was. If you don't have confidence at this point, you probably never did. We played in two places with crowds, and both times we haven't played well. So I don't know if the crowd got to us or we're just not used to it, but we just didn't play well. I'm sorry, Tom. This was just a bad excuse. I mean, let, let, let's take what, what, what this setting really is. There's under 2,000 people in the building, and they're not getting that loud. This was a garbage game. It was tough on the eyes. You know, if this game was being played in, like, you know, the 80s where both teams are back and forth, I could see the crowd getting into it. This was a rock fight. Butler's struggling to break 60. The other team across the way is struggling to break 50. You're telling me the crowd was raucous? That, that held them back? I'm not buying that. Let, let me get this straight. I just want to make sure I understand everything, Mike. So Coach Willard doesn't like playing at Walsh. He doesn't like playing at the Rock in front of nobody. And now it's probably he doesn't like playing in front of what it would have been a really great high school crowd. Is is this what you're telling me? Where do you like playing? Do you want to play at the old court that used to be out in front of Bowling Hall? Is that where you'd like to play? Or would there be too many people around? Would the UPS driver that used to come in and play at the 4 o'clock game on Monday afternoons come in and interrupt what you're trying to do? What are you saying? I, I don't think they like playing in front of a sold-out crowd against Villanova on senior night. I don't think they like playing at the 12 noon start against Xavier last year. That This team has thrived under Willard about being the underdog, being in that hostile road environment. That's where they like to play, believe it or not. Go figure. But in all the settings that they should have an advantage or maybe neutralize that advantage of the other team, they have not done well. But but they've been great road warriors otherwise. It's, it's kind of surprising. This wasn't the crowd from Hoosiers, Mike. This wasn't, we've got spirit. Yes, we do. We got spirit. How about you, Mike? This was, uh, this was a, barely a crowd. Crowd wasn't even coming across in the microphones. I'm cutting you off right there after that kind of comment. That's it. We're moving on. <laughs> All right. Uh, last one. On Seton Hall having the edge it needed or not playing well. That's a good question, Gary. Uh, I would say it's a combination of both. We have a lot of guys who haven't really been in this situation. They've never had to be the guy in this situation. And I think it's a big step. Different guys react in different ways. 
And I don't think these guys know the pressure. And now that we have guys who were not responsible for making big plays at times last year, and now they have to make big plays, and it's a lot on these guys' plate. Their effort has been great. Their effort has been off the charts. And I thought we did a really good job for most of the game defensively. But offensively, I think we just got a little bit hesitant. I thought we stood a little bit. We missed some shots early, and it just took us off our rhythm. Huh. Wow, it was a mouthful. That, that, that was completely a mouthful. So let me get this one straight, Mike. Weren't Sandro and Kale and Roden and Javar? Are you telling me they weren't part of the team that had 17,000 people in the crowd yelling at The Rock last year with a chance to clinch the title? Were they not the guys that played out and sold out great in the following game? Were these not the guys that were part of the game that ended the streak at Nova? Was it all just Miles Powell? Did they not have a big portion of this? Has Kale not had big games and drilled teams away previously? I don't understand it, Mike. I, I, I think it's just deflecting. I, I think it's smoke and mirrors. But at, at some point, you know, it's okay to sit there and say, hey, I'm going to need these guys to have to step up. Yes, they, they've struggled recently, no doubt. Uh, and going into these last two games, we're going to need all hands on deck. There's no secret, right? Hey, if our four upperclassmen are not going to be able to bring it, you know, at a high level in these next two games, there's a good chance we're probably not going to win. That's not throwing your guys under the bus. That's kind of just stating the obvious. But to sit there and pretend that they're not ready for the moment, to me, that's throwing them under the bus. Right, because Shavar is hitting big threes in the Villanova game. Uh, you know, Roden was a double-digit scorer last year, and he's been playing very well this year. I mean, I understand Kale's been inconsistent, and Sandro's had some challenges in being the guy, but Sandro's had big moments even throughout this season. So now, well, yeah, he has huge games where he goes for almost thirty. Where he, where he did, he goes thirty plus early in the season, and now he's not ready for the spotlight. Come on. And it's not like we're playing Nova and Creighton recently, Mike. So let's just put a bow on this right now. You know, there's been a lot of talk this past week about real fandom and stuff like that. Like criticizing bad performances makes you a bad fan, you know. And let's not make any mistakes here. We've not played a good game of basketball since February 6th. We beat a shorthanded UConn team on that day. And since then... We've had an awful batch of basketball against what is the bottom of the Big East Conference. And I'm not talking figuratively, Mike. I mean literally the bottom of the conference. The 8th, the ninth, the 10th, and the 11th place teams in this league. So this criticism is deserved. You can't accept the accolades and the platitudes that come with winning if you can't accept the critique when you're not doing your job well. And then when you come out with these quotes, it just adds fuel to the fire. But you know what I did this morning, Mikey? What'd you do, Tommy? What did you do? I went downstairs and started drinking my coffee and my youngest came running up to me and she said she wanted bagels for breakfast. So I grabbed the nearest sweatshirt which happened to be an old Seton Hall one that needs to be retired soon. I grabbed my Seton Hall winter cap because, man, it was chilly this a.m. It was like, you know, mid-50s. <laughs> and I went out and got my bagels. So even with all that bad play, even all that complaining I'm doing, even all that criticizing, I'm still repping the blue. 
we, we all do. I, I, and you know, a diehard can still be at times a grumpy diehard. There's, there's nothing wrong with that. And you know, like I said, the games have not been you know easy on the eyes. Even the people that follow the team, their write-ups have been, this is a rock fight. This wasn't an easy one. Just, it was a win in the, you know, it was a W in the wing column. Let's just move forward. But, you know, it caught up to them. And they've lost two of the four in which we felt like, like I said, behind the scenes, they probably should have taken all four. So, it, you know, the emotions are going to be raw. You know, the opinions are going to be kind of, like you said, on both ends of the spectrum. And, you know, it, it doesn't mean that the fan base has completely quit on this team. But they're frustrated when you start tasting the success of going to multiple NCAAs back to back to back over and over again. You don't want to go backwards. So, you know, and it's going to happen. There's going to be a year that you just kind of you don't make it. We're not a blue blood. Uh, and it seems like that's where we're trending. And that's that's frustrating. People haven't been able to accept that yet. Uh, and, and maybe we don't have to. You know, maybe we turn it around in these last two games and there's a glimmer of hope. But right now, that's not that's not the aura of what's surrounding the team right now. What you Mike, you said these last set of games were uh, hard on the eyes, but you know what? This last game was also hard on the ears, Mike. So let's talk about the Mike flops and drops. Ah, man, that, that, the broadcast haven't been good for the last four either, in my opinion, right? It's just a, been a collective nightmare. Uh, all right, so so on the call was John Sadak and Julianne Viani Brain. Uh, and like this was also kind of you know beat to a dead horse on social media because they beat it to a dead horse on the broadcast itself. They must have used the phrase must win or cannot lose in reference to Seton Hall at least a dozen times. And it was, it was just annoying. I mean, I, I, I wanted to mute the game, but in, in true respect for what we do here on the show, we had to kind of brave through it and try to catch these mic flops, but it was, it was just painful, man. My bigger issue with, with, with John though, is I don't like it when a broadcaster kind of makes it about themselves in terms of their play-by-play delivery. I have a real hard time watching NFL football and NBA games when Kevin Harlan is on the mic. He makes it sound like a three-yard run was like the Marcus Allen Super Bowl run against the Redskins where he's cutting back and making moves and you're like, wow, what a run. And then he's like, and a three-yard gain. <laughs> but he, I mean, but I mean, he pumps it up so big on every play that you're just like, all right, this is exhausting. And I kind of got that same vibe from from John throughout his broadcast. And I'll, I'll give you a moment that to me that kind of just epitomized, you know, this over the top energy throughout the game. Jair Bolden hits a tough jump shot with about 159 to play, and it puts Butler up by 16. I'm sorry, the way that game was being played, and the way that Seton Hall could not throw the ball in the ocean, you know. Any kind of double-digit lead felt like that game was over with under two minutes to play. But Bolden hits that shot, and what does he say? Dagger! <laughs> Come on, Tom! I, I, I had given up on that game five minutes ago. Dagger? Come on! You know, I'm kind of conflicted with this announcing group. You know, yes, they were over the top. And actually, John more than Julianne. Julianne, actually, I, I enjoyed Julianne's insights on the game being the former Maris star that she is. Uh, but I actually enjoyed the fact that they were really brutally honest at some points. I hate it when announcers try to describe the play that fits the narrative of what they were just selling. So player A is this tough and gritty guy that's done this and that, and he puts up a horrible shot and the announcers, you know, fluff it up and just like, oh, tough shot by so-and-so. No, these guys were calling out horrible shot, 
off-balance shot, terrible shot, you know, bad decision. I enjoy that from my announcers, to be honest with you. Well, that, that's fair. Sadak twice within the first five minutes of the game described his Seton Hall shot as ugly. Yes, so, yeah. yes. <laughs> but, you know, I found, again, we just spent a long time talking about Kevin Willard quotes. I found a lot of comments that these guys came up with as strange that they got directly from Kevin Willard. So let's just go through a few of these things and and talk them through because I was just like scratching my head. So there was one point where they're introducing Kevin Willard to uh, to the audience and they say the following. He finds himself on the bubble for what he says is the seventh straight year. So Mike, let, let's let's rewind. Let's go back, and I maybe oh he's boy. just maybe he's just talking. You know, he's being a bit. This is the issue. Sadak is not saying that the Pirates have been on the bubble for the seventh straight year. He's not Mike flopping by not knowing what's going on. He's quoting Kevin Willard in his like pregame prep conversation with the coach. He's like, "Yeah, Kevin told me we're always on the bubble, right? Seven years in a row." And I'm sitting there going, "What?" They were on the bubble back in 2014-15 when they lost nine out of their last 10 games. They were on the bubble last year. Did Kevin truly feel like they were on the bubble last year? You know, maybe Come Kevin on. was just exaggerating a little bit, but you know, you can't exaggerate in these points because people that watch these games, there are times that people don't follow Seton Hall and they're going to believe this as, as gospel. You got to be accurate with these things, as was the next comment that he made about Sandro where he talks about how Sandro this past summer was testing the NBA waters, but he thought his statistics weren't up to standards. So we came back with this one. So we came back and they set some benchmarks for him. And Willard believes that he's gotten to the success rate at the, on the big stage that now he is a viable NBA man. Now, talent-wise, and no one's going to argue that Mount, that Sandro doesn't have the talent to make the NBA. But over the last 12 games, Mike, Sandro's averaged four turnovers per game. In addition to that, he just comes in, puts up a four of 13 against Butler, and has another six turnovers. Yeah, yeah. They, they were talking about the metrics and his, his efficiency in improving how he's going to play the game offensively at the next level. The skill set's there, but as the defenses have kind of shifted their focus to Sandro, he's been anything but, you know, the model of efficiency. He's done a lot of nice things that kind of, you know, raise your eyebrows and go, wow, whoa, did you see that? We even have that, whoa, did you see that moment for this week's uh, telecast? I mean, th- they've been so bottled up and so inefficient offensively and Sandro's kind of been, you know, the, the highlight of that, he has struggled at times with his turnovers. So for them to kind of just throw that out there and then not mention his off the charts turnover percentages lately, I thought it was inconsistent, right? So to me, kind of a mic flop by not taking the Willard quote and then doing your research behind it. All right, Tom, let, let me throw this last one at you. All right. Jahari Long's about to check into the game and they're trying to give the background on Jahari, right? So he says, now Long is the one, who has been spelling Reynolds at point guard. And Kevin Willard has said to the local media and confirmed to us that there was a thinning of the offense to some degree to allow him to acclimate. Their plan was for him to redshirt in a normal year, but this is not a normal year and Bryce Aiken is hurt. Okay, uh, this is interesting, right? So if Willard said that to Sadak, okay, that, that could have been like breaking news for the first time, but he prefaces it with Willard has told the, his local media 
that this has been the narrative. When did Willard share that news with Jerry Carino or Pelsman or Fanta or Zach Brazilla or Zagoria? Did any one of those guys that cover this program ever come out and say that Jahari Long was originally intended to be a red shirt player this year? Well, you know, he could always save face by saying, I'm not telling you when the plan was, because originally there was no, there was no, ever been no talk at all about long redshirting. You go back to the summer, you have Fanta on the show with us, and Fanta's telling us that he thinks that Long's going to make a breakthrough performance here because Willard's saying he's going to. So, there was a pumping up of Long all the way from the beginning of the season. So I don't buy that in the least bit. It's interesting that this even comes up. Is this saving face because the kid has been pushed into a position where he's not ready yet? I mean, it's, I, I, I don't like it. But, but on a lighter note, Mike, they thinned out the offense so the kid could acclimate? What, yeah, the, we, we, I, what the weave I, what the weave and the yes, ISO was yes. too hard? No, the, the weave has probably about like six different handoffs before it gets going. They cut it down to three. Oh, and then he couldn't figure out to pass to the guy in the wing and then clear out? What, that? that's something you uh, need to acclimate to? I mean, see, see, here's the problem. This has morphed into uh, another extension of deep thoughts with Kevin Willard when this is really Mike flops and Mike drops. My, my issue in terms of the Mike flop is, you know what, you're getting this material and you don't know anything about our team, right? Do the homework in terms of your broadcast prep, you get these interesting three quotes from the coach. And like you said, you take it as gospel. How about you bounce that off against somebody else to be like, you know, what, what's the narrative here? What's really been going on with Seton Hall for, for the season. But when you get that message from the head coach, why would you think that it's not true? Right. Uh, so, so, so say rolling with it when the reality is he now makes these comments and all the fans are scratching their head on all three going, really, really Willie said that. Or, hey, you know, this is not the narrative of the Seton Hall team, and you're putting that out on your national broadcast. I, it just seems like every time that we get a CBS broadcast, we get the D team. I, I, I don't know. Okay, Mike, we need to move on. We've beat that horse as, as much as we could. We're at that point where it starts making sense to talk about what the future is going to hold for Seton Hall. And we're firmly on that bubble. Now, whether we're outside the bubble, whether we're on the bubble, whatever, it's going to take a 2-0 week to get us into the conversation. And I know, I know this is one of your favorite topics. So why don't we go in and play a little bubble breakdown? Well, the last time we did this last year, you like kind of relegated me to five minutes and then you were cutting me off. Do I, do I, do I get up you, a little more leeway than five, five minutes? You've got four minutes and 59 seconds now, oh, Mike. Geez. All right. So, so here's what I want to do here really real quick is I want to kind of take a high level snapshot of kind of getting the teams that are kind of not necessarily 100% locked in the field, but 100% locked in the field relative to where Seton Hall stands, kind of get it down to, you know, who's in and then what kind of spots are left over relative to this bubble. And then we can quickly break down the bubble. All right. So as always, bear with me. Uh, I think the big 12 has got seven teams locked. Their lowest ranked teams is Oklahoma State, and they've already got like five wins against top 25 teams. So the Big 12 has got their seven. The Big East clearly has Nova and Creighton. The Big 10 has eight teams themselves. And yes, that includes Maryland, and I hate to say it, Rutgers, who both have nine conference wins. Even if they don't get the 500 and bottom out, nine in the Big 10 is going to be good enough. You got the WCC with two and Gonzaga and BYU. The SEC has six. The Pac-12 has four. The ACC's got six locks after Louisville and North Carolina took care of business this past weekend. 
San Diego State. You've got with- North Carolina as a lock after Marquette went into Chapel uh, Hill and beat them. They 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 took care of business yesterday and oh, got a rank. You are on crack, Mike. I'm not. Did you follow it yesterday? They beat they beat Florida State yesterday. They got another marquee win. Right now, if you look at their resume, I don't think that locks them in. But go ahead, continue. Sorry, no, no, you, you didn't listen. Locked them in relative to Seton Hall at this moment. So they are. If you put the two of them side by side, there's no questions to be asked. North Carolina is ahead of Seton Hall. Okay, we're just trying to get it down to the bubble and who Seton Hall is up against. Then you got Loyola Chicago, you got VCU, you got like a Houston. At the end of all of this, you got 39 teams that have just much better resumes at this point than Seton Hall in terms of a lock, right? And then you got 21 other conferences where they're going to send one team in terms of their automatic bid. So simple math, that right there is 60 teams and the tournament's got 68 spots. So you got eight spots available. And in my opinion, as you kind of go through all this bracketology and just look at the standing, it's not rocket science. You don't need a degree in bracketology like Joe Lenardi claims to have. There's about 16 teams left over that have a viable spot or a viable chance to fight for these eight spots. And here's what I'm going to do, Tom. I'm going to even narrow it down further. And I'm going to give you a couple teams on the top half and a couple teams on the bottom half that we're just going to bop right out, right? So UConn, Xavier, St. Bonaventures, Boise State, Drake, Yeah, you could debate me on this, but if you pull up their metrics, they just have better net evaluating scores. They have better Ken Palm scores. They don't have bad losses, and they all have some semblance of a couple more key wins. So I'm going to take those five teams, and for this argument, boom, I'm putting them in. And on the back end, I'm going to do the exact opposite. I'm going to say, all right, Syracuse, Richmond, Stanford, Utah State, Indiana, all have net metrics worse than Seton Hall. And they have bad losses and lack of quality wins. I'm going to bump them out. Okay. So that was it. I got, I got you there in two minutes. I'm now down to six teams for three spots on the bubble. And bear with me here. That's assuming that you have no bid stealers. That means that nobody else runs their conference tournament and in the American wins instead of Houston and therefore takes away another bubble spot. So if everything breaks perfectly for all these teams, there's about three spots left over for Seton Hall right now. But everyone says if they win the next two, oh, they're in. They're in. I, I still disagree with that. So here's the exercise. I'm going to give you Seton Hall's numbers. And then I'm going to give you these other five teams. And just based on your gut of what you're hearing, you tell me right now, are they ahead of Seton Hall or behind Seton Hall for any one of these three spots? Now, now mind you, Mikey, you're talking to the guy that wears blue tinted glasses. So it's going to be hard for me to be objective, but I'll do my best. Okay, so so let's start off and set the baseline, which is Seton Hall's numbers. As of this morning, before any games are being played this Sunday, Seton Hall sits at a net of 54 and a Ken Palm of 44. They are 13 and 10 overall. I don't even care where they stand in the conference standings. To me, that's irrelevant. They are quad one and two, six and nine. They have good wins at Xavier, at UConn, and they have bad losses at Butler, and URI. People are going to tell you that URI is not a bad loss. It's still a quad two. Butler's a quad three, but URI is now, you know, north of 100 in their net and they're trending in the wrong direction. They're below 500. That's not a good win. And to me, it's starting to fall into that bad loss category. All right. So team number one, are you ready? Old Miss. They have a net of 60. They got a Ken Palma 60, both worse than Seton Hall. They are also 13 and 10 overall. They're a quad one and two of seven and eight, very similar to the Pirates, but they're good wins are twice against Missouri and against a top 25 or top 15 Tennessee team. Their bad losses 
at Vandy, really bad loss this weekend, Georgia twice. And of those losses, two are quad three losses. Their remaining games are Kentucky and Vanderbilt at home. Assuming that both teams were to win out, you got Ole Miss ahead or behind Seton Hall? They've got to be behind Seton Hall at that point. They're, they've got they've got themselves some really bad losses. I think that Vanderbilt loss is worse than what we've got, and, and our rankings seem to be better. So we're ahead of Ole Miss. Okay, I, I can agree with that. So we're gonna we're gonna discredit their good wins and just put more negativity on their resume sheet. Okay, I, I can see that. Here's another one. Here's another team with some poor metrics in terms of the net and Ken Palm, but man, the resume itself has got some beef. Michigan State. Now there's some cachet now to that name too, right? So 13 and nine overall, you know, in the powerhouse Big Ten, their quad one and two is exactly like Seton Hall six and nine, and they got good wins over. Ohio State, Illinois, at Indiana, Rutgers, and Duke. They're bad losses. We only got one. They have at Northwestern, which is a quad two, very similar to our Butler loss, right? And their remaining games are at Maryland and two with Michigan. Right now, Michigan State ahead or behind a seat home. So we're not talking about the rest of how the rest of the schedule um, plays out. Well, if they beat Michigan once, I, I don't even think it's close. So, so, so no matter how badly Michigan State has struggled this year in, in relevance to what Michigan State normally does, those big wins, that Illinois win, that Ohio State win, as it pains me to say that Rutgers win, those are better wins than anything we've got on our schedule. Add to that the the cachet, as you will, of that Michigan State name. Michigan Michigan State is ahead of us. If they lose their last three, now they're below. They're they're now going to be thirteen and twelve heading into the. You know, the big, if they go over three, it's going to be a problem. But if they get if they score two out of three, they're in a really good position. So so people are starting. This my whole point here is people are saying Seton Hall controls their own destiny. Relative to Michigan State, I don't think so. No. Okay, moving on. There's another one, more cachet. If you thought Michigan State had cachet, here's your name with cachet. Duke, net 58, worse than Seton Hall. Ken Palm, 33, better than Seton Hall. 11 and 9 overall. Quad 1 and 2, 6 and 7. Very similar. Good wins. Virginia, Georgia Tech, Clemson. Bad losses. Notre Dame, Miami, and Pittsburgh. Also, two quad three losses for them, and their remaining games are at Georgia Tech and at North Carolina. If Duke controls their own destiny and wins those last two games, Seton Hall or Duke? See, this is where it gets interesting. I mean, they've got some really bad losses on that ledger. They do. But that that win against, and Virginia's not as good this year as they've been in past years. But that is, that's where the rubber hits the road. And I think all the numbers and all the metrics kind of go out the, at the door. And the committee is just going to say, Duke, even last night with that overtime loss to Louisville, they're going to, everyone had them back on track to be back in the tournament without actually doing anything overly impressive. And, so, the reality, and the reality is those are two quad one games that they have left over on their schedule because they're both road games against teams that are either on the bubble or in the field themselves at this point, where Seton Hall's two games are quad twos. So if we're talking about controlling their own destiny and Duke wins out, I'm with you. Duke has got to be ahead of Seton Hall in this conversation right now. Right? My heart says Hall. My brain says Duke. Okay, so that's two. I, got, I had three spots available, and Seton Hall is ahead of one behind two. 
All right, the, the next team, Georgia Tech. It's an interesting one because they've come on, come on like gangbusters out of nowhere. But their numbers now, their net is a 40, better than Seton Hall. Their Ken Palm is a 32, way better than Seton Hall and one of the best on the list out of this group. They are now 13 and eight overall. Their quad one and two is six and six. Their good wins at Virginia Tech, Syracuse, Clemson, Florida State, and North Carolina, but they, they got some bad losses. They opened up the season with losses at home to Georgia State and Mercer. And their remaining games, Duke and at Wake Forest. I don't know, man, if they, if they win out. So you, there's a little cannibalization here, right? If, if they play Duke next, so it's going to hurt one of the two. But once again, the concept is control your own destiny. If they were to win their last two games, Georgia Tech, Seton Hall. And again, that's Georgia Tech all the way. I don't think they get discredited for those really bad losses. Yes, they lost to, what was it, Georgia State and Mercer. It's like triple, over, it's like triple overtime People, or something like that, right? The committee is going to forget and forgive those early season losses. They, they, the committee has done that for years upon years. As And look at what have they done into the recent rounds. Uh, yeah, oh, Georgia Tech takes that number, Mike. That That's a really impressive. And then the last team that I threw in the mix, because they're all like, on the bubble, according to like all bracketology, is Colorado State, you know, out of the Mountain West. They are net 45, Ken Palm 67. So kind of one better, one worse than Seton Hall, 14 and four overall. You know, they don't have a lot of marquee games, quad one and two, they're three and four. They got a good win at San Diego State. They have no bad losses and they got three like blah games left over. Air Force, New Mexico, and Nevada. But if this team gets to 17 and four overall and they don't uh, have their metrics get any worse, are they better or worse than Seton Hall? They've got to they've got to sweep the rest of their season. See anything? I usually discredit anything west of the Mississippi and east of California. To be honest with you, when you look at a lot of this stuff, but I, that that that's a lot of smoke and mirrors. That Colorado State team there. Uh, they, they, if they sweep it out, they may make it. But I think Seton Hall. If Seton Hall goes two and zero, and and Colorado State stumbles in one of them. It's not even a question. Oh, Colorado State stumbles. They're out. I don't even against any of these teams on this list. They got to run the, run the table, probably even have a, a, a decent run in their conference. And I'll say this. I see Colorado State stubbing their toe twice. How about that? So I gave you six teams. You got Seton Hall better than two. You got Seton Hall behind three. There were only three spots available. Now, it's debatable if there were three spots available. But, Tom, that puts them potentially on the cusp of being the last team in the field. And in some people's opinion, they could be out and other opinions, they could be in. And you got people out there going, it's a lock if they get to 12. It's a lock if they win their last two. What is with that narrative? It's it's not a lock. And I, I go back one more time and say this. This is assuming that there are no bid stealers. So if a couple teams steal bids, now Seton Hall on this list of six probably needs to be the best team of the group. I don't know. Now, all the teams that I mentioned from the top of this, root for them to lose. Be a fan of March. <laughs> be a fan of March Madness. You know, maybe a team like Drake loses two more, and all of a sudden they're robust twenty-four and three. You're now questioning it because they got a ton of bad losses, and it's hey, maybe Drake was all smoke and mirrors. Fine, but Seton Hall does not control their own destiny. Not in my opinion. Well, uh, I'm just surprised that you haven't blamed COVID-19 on this as well, Mike. You seem to blame everything else on the pandemic. So moving on, let's talk about the pandemic pandemonium here, Mike. What do you want to complain about this week? 
I don't want to complain. You didn't find it interesting that when the uh, NCAA tournament committee rolled out their, their new adjustments, basically saying that, hey, remember, you forgot. Oh, if a player tests positive, we're going to contact trace it. It's not going to kick the team out of the tournament. No issues here. All right. So we, we kind of were like, that's kind of weird. But that's once the team is in Indianapolis, right? Now they put out some new language that said, hey, prior to getting there, you still got to pass the protocols. So if you're in a one bid league and that team defaults because they're not passing the COVID tests, right? They get to choose a replacement for their, for their, to represent their conference. So I'm going to assume that if, if it wasn't the auto qualifier from the tournament, it's going to default to the regular season champion in these smaller conferences, or maybe if that team is one and the same, they'll default to the second place team from the regular season. Okay. I, I have no issue with that. For scratches of multiple bid leagues before the tournament starts, the first four out will serve as a waiting list. This is like the kid who got cut from the high school team, right? But if but if somebody gets kicked off, we, we're gonna, you're next up, buddy. We're going to give you a call and put you on the team. That's what they're saying right now, right? So if you know Xavier gets in but not Seton Hall, and then Xavier has another COVID test, uh, positive COVID test, and they get bumped out prior to getting to Indianapolis, and Seton Hall is hypothetically next on the list in the first four out, they are now in. Okay, what, what do you think about that? This whole season, you've you've had problems with this, with the whole season, just because of the fluidity. You wanted, you know, rock solid answers in a situation that was always going to get fluid. You know, even the science in this realm is fluid. You know, you learn more. The more you learn, the more you can make uh, mitigations for. I What do I say? I'm, they're doing the best with what they've got here. I mean, I'm okay with this. I really like the whole... Once a tournament starts, a scratch is a DQ, no replacements. I really like that. I thought all season long, if you missed a game due to a COVID positive test, that game should have been forfeited. Sorry, you missed four games. That's 0-4 in your ledger. That's just reality. That's how the world works. And none of this make this nonsense up now later because now you've got a team like Xavier who has played a handful of games in the Big East, six and five in conference, is being talked about being a lock right now for the NCAA tournament. They're not a lock. No, no, they're, they're in better position than maybe they should be. And look, I, they I don't think- They should Jibble- even have an opportunity at oh. this point. They should be six and 12 right now oh, because geez. they've missed all these games. Now you got, oh, I'm not and going I'm down that rabbit hole. I'm not what? doing it. I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole. I almost hole. guarantee you there was a lot of talk. Travis Steele was like, we're trying to find some out-of-conference games to fill in our schedule. Couldn't do it, could you, though? But all of a sudden, Marquette travels all the way to Chapel Hill to play North Carolina? I don't know that they were trying so hard. That's like I, when my kids tell me they're trying to clean their room, but it ends up being messier than it was previously. I think someone else has got bigger issues with this subject matter than me all of a sudden. All right. <laughs> Last bullet point here for pandemic pandemonium, right? So you get DQ'd if you're already in the tournament and you test positive now, right? And they can't figure out a solution. Uh, you're kind of getting bumped up if you're a scratch and you're on that like waiting list. But here's an interesting one. If you're... If you're getting put in for a team that scratches, I'll give you an example. Let's say it's the number one seed in Gonzaga. They have another positive. And Seton Hall is now first on the list. 
they don't reshuffle the field where Seton Hall's now in the playing game, Tom. Right? Because that would make sense, right? They're they're now in the first four because they get bumped up. Guess what happens? That team gets the number one seed in the way this all plays out. So so are you okay with that? It's all, about, <laughs> Come it's, on. All, it's all about logistics, Mike. You can't sit there and start reshuffling everyone's schedules. This is going to be the most difficult scheduling nightmare of all time. Forget about a regular tournament basis. This is going to be it. Yeah, it's, it's going to be what it's going to be, man. <laughs> so, I'll, so I'll do this. This is crazy. Do, do you root for Seton Hall to get automatically into the field and get that like 10 seed because they, they win the Big East tournament? Or do you, do you root for them to kind of just be that team that gets in as the part of the first four group and they got to play that extra game as part of that Thursday opening night or better yet, do you just root for them to be the first team not in and then hope that one of these big dogs that has had COVID positives all season long, like Baylor and Gonzaga actually end up with a positive test. You get a one seed, you get the 16 seed in your first game. Then you get an eight, nine matchup in the, in the second round, if you win, and they got a chance for a second weekend appearance. How are you going to feel about that? Is, is, is that what we should be doing? Is, no, is that no. our best chance to get to the second weekend right now? I always say you win out, get the best seating that you can. Don't try to count on stuff that you've got no control over. It's just silly. I, uh, how about this? How about this? We get in as a 16 seat. No, we we get seen at 16. The number one team gets bumped because of a scratch. Now we play a first four team in and we get the benefit of getting the 116 matchup and we don't have to have an asterisk in front of our name. How about that? No, but Kevin Wald's going to tell you that the other team has already played a game and they're in <laughs> a better rhythm and, and we've had too much of a rest. So I mean, Speaking of games this week, Mike, we've got two big games coming up this week. One against UConn and one at St. John's. What better way to prep for this than to go behind enemy lines? We have a new friend of the podcast, Dom Amore of the Hartford Current, and we're going to release this podcast later in this week. Until then, we're going to say go Pirates. Go Big Blue. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Left Coast Pirates. Be sure to follow us on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other of your favorite listening platforms. Also be sure to follow us on Twitter with our handle at Pirates. We are also proud members of the What You Expect Network of Podcasts. And don't miss out on any of our previous episodes that include interviews with Seton Hall legends, Danny Calandrillo, Mark Bryant, Andrew Gaze, Shaheen Holloway, and many others. For Tom Kaharski, I'm Mike Desiri, and you've been listening to Left Coast Pirates. Thank <laughs> you.